Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is the Minister of Public Works and Infrastructure, who is also the leader of the political party, Good, Patricia DeLille. Welcome to the show, Minister DeLille. Thank you, thank you. Minister, to begin with, the department's mission is to provide a strategic direction which offer innovative and proactive socioeconomic infrastructure delivery and maintenance of public assets at the same time, protecting the environment and our culture and historical heritage. Please, can you tell us about some of the significant plans that the department is focusing on? Yes, thank you so much. Yes, you know, I became the minister in May of 2019, and um, I was offered the Department of Public Works, but the president decided to add a new uh, department to it, which is the Department of Public Works and Infrastructure. And I like that because I like new challenges and uh, I had to start an infrastructure department from scratch and also had to look at the fragmentation of infrastructure because that was the rationale behind it. So as much as I was then learning about being the custodian at a national level of all government uh, assets, properties and land, and it's a massive portfolio. I think the value is over five, five trillion rand. So yes, we must make sure that uh, public land and public buildings and infrastructure, uh, how they can be utilized to stimulate and to sustain economic growth in the built environment. And also how we can create investor confidence in, in the built environment. So my first mandate was to start this department from scratch. A few months later, I was asked uh, by the president to develop an infrastructure investment plan for the country. I was also tasked to set up a structure which is called Infrastructure South Africa. Then my next mandate was I had to go and design and build a national infrastructure plan up to 2050. Because that is one of the plans that will give confidence to investors and and the build environment if they know what government plans are. And on top of the 50-year plan, I was also tasked uh, to do the implementation of the first three years of the plan. And I had to overlay the plan with the National Spatial Development Framework also to deal with the old apartheid spatial planning, trying to bring people closer to well-located land. And that is also done now. Minister, something that strikes me on a continuous basis is that we're still dealing with legacy of apartheid on spatial systems. Do you think that with these interventions you've got in place, we'll finally move past it? Yes. You know, I started with spatial integration when I was still the mayor of the city of Cape Town and identified 12 pieces of land uh, to build affordable housing, not RVP housing, but affordable housing 
that could deal with the gap market, you know, your nurses, your teachers, uh, your police and, 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 and the working class. Unfortunately, what happened in 1994, with all good intention purposes, the government decided in the first five years that um, under the leadership of Mr. Nelson Mandela, that government must build one million houses. And unfortunately, we perpetuated the apartheid spatial planning by building those million houses outside of the big cities, very urban area on the outside. So there was no integration with the million houses. In fact, we didn't, we, we, we didn't even build communities, just build houses. There were no clinics, there were no schools. It was just the emphasis was on this one million houses. In 2014 only, the government came with an Infrastructure Development Act of 2014. And that is where spatial integration was now legislated. But as you can see all over the country, the cities very much remain the same. Most of our cities were not built uh, to accommodate millions of people. The only integration that we've seen over the past 28 years in our new democracy came when the upper class, the upper LSM black working class, colored and Indian, could afford to buy in the previously white areas. So integration took place at that scale and, and it has grown over the past 28 years. But in terms of uh, government contribution to spatial integration by building affordable housing for the poor people, the vulnerable, and bring them closer to work opportunities, that has hardly happened. With the, the National Infrastructure Plan for 2050, I made it one of the priorities that we are going to start doing it. So we've already identified land in two cities. The first city is the city of Cape Town. That project, if we started, it will really bring affordable rental accommodation to poorer people, middle-class people, working class, to live closer to work opportunities. We're also doing one in Antwane um, in, in Pretoria, where we are building four national department headquarters. And by building these national head offices, we're building around those offices also affordable accommodation, a sort of a mixed development, you know, where you have bonded houses, you've got commercial activities. And then the third one that we are doing is in the city of Itaquene. But yes, apart from spatial planning, is very much still part of our daily lives. Those are such important interventions that you're making because when you think about access to opportunities, there goes with it the, the cost yes. of transportation. Um, when you talk about the fact that these million houses back in 1994 were built without any cognizance of services, be it clinics, uh, be yeah. it um, police stations, all of that that makes up a community and a place to, to live. Yes. Minister, it's quite unusual for someone not being in the ANC to be appointed 
into cabinet. And yes. I wonder from this point of view, and obviously this is the, the, the president's choice, but you did yes. such tremendous work in the infrastructure space when you were serving as mayor of Cape Town, particularly when the whole of Cape Town was tracking towards day zero in terms of running out yes. of, of water. I live in the Gauteng area, but we could sense this reality uh, that people were going through. And I was very thankful not to be in Cape Town at that time. But please, can you tell us about some of the interventions you applied to the public to stem water consumption and to get people to really take this collective responsibility for the community and think about water as a finite resource? Yes, just um, maybe to respond to the first question, since 1994, it has become the norm in South Africa that in every five-year term of a cabinet under an ANC president that they have appointed one member from the opposition parties to serve in the cabinet. At the time of Nelson Mandela, he brought in the IFP, he brought in the National uh, uh, the Nationalist Party, and under Thabo Mbeki, it was Azapu, the Freedom Front Plus. They also gave ambassadorship to about 10 people from the Democratic Alliance. So it's nothing unusual for a member of the opposition parties to serve within cabinet. In fact, I don't have any coalition agreement uh, with the ANC. I'm there to serve my country in any capacity. And um, I am not sidetracked by being in an ANC-dominated cabinet because every minister served there the pleasure of the president. The only thing that I knew from the beginning was that, yes, I was thrown into the deep end and I'm not going to fail. So I'm working very, very hard. In fact, I am the longest-serving minister of public works since 1994, the turnover of ministers was anything between one year and two years. So for me, my contribution must be seen that I am here to serve. Once you are in government, you serve all the people of the country, irrespective, you know, which political party they belong to. So I just wanted to ask that. Day zero, I tell you, this is an experience that I will never forget where I could kick myself because in the beginning when we didn't get our rainfall in winter as normal, I spoke to all the engineers and the the water department in the city and I said, I'm worried that we didn't get the rains in June, July, August. And they said, no, no, Maya, don't worry. It's going to come in October. I said, listen here, I am not a Sangoma. We can't depend on what's going to happen in October. I then say we need to start planning. And the new norm in the city will be the moment our dams reach 50%, then we must know we are in a crisis. So then having met with them every morning at 7 o'clock, we were able to put a plan to react and to respond what is going to come for us. We started off by water, um, water demand management. We had to reduce the demand of water so that we could stress the little bit that we have. I used to say to them that you can only save water while you have water. 
So that was part of the savings. And we won an international prize at the time from Mayor Bloomberg. We also learned very quickly that we can no longer rely just on rainwater because of climate change. And that we have to overlay all our plans going into the future with the impact of climate change. I then called Clem Santner. He did scenario planning in the beginning of 92, 93, about the kind of scenarios and the type of country that we might have. And we did, went through the scenario planning, which was a shocker and an eye-opener, because it then sank in that if we run out of water, what the impact will be, you know, starting with the most obvious one, which that you won't even think about, is your as your whole sanitation system, your sewage system. If there's no water that can take that waste to uh, the wastewater treatment plant, all of that will just simply get stuck in the pipes, and you it will not move. You know things like that, and and also you know the the poorer people access to water. We had to limit water to everyone. We also found out that about 14% of our water is just leaked away on a daily basis. And the norm internationally is normally at 10%. I said we can't waste any drop of water. We employed 4,000 young people. We put them through a, a, a six-week training course, how to fix steps, how to replace a washer, how to detect leaks. And we just let them lose in the city. Within two months, the 14% came down to 12%. We now had to also push up the price of water. But then you found the, the ones that can afford it. Uh, we live in Constantia and Bishop's Court and all over the, the, the city who continued because they can afford to pay. And then I said, no. Money's not going to assist us here. We don't want your money. We want you to save water. And we gave them like one, two, three warnings. After the third warning, I personally led a campaign where we went to those big houses and we pulled up their water meters, which belong to the city because it's our infrastructure. And we fit in a water meter that restricted them to 350 liters per day. So we had to do a lot of things, but it was clear that the rain was not coming and we had to look at alternative sources of water. We looked at desalination and uh, we got some consultants in that plotted that we can build about 20 desalination plants around the coastline. And I said, look at the cost of the water. We had to pass the cost on to the consumer. We can certainly not do that. We can do some of it, but we can't do the whole project. I phoned Michael Bloomberg and I said, please, I need some technical, independent technical help. And, the, and he sent two people, two world experts, and they came to look at the plan. And the very same day they said to me, Mayor, they are just telling you what you want to hear. This plan is not going to work. Before you can decide where you want to build a desalination plant, you have to test the water for at least three months. They've never done that. So the specifications of the sieves that we're going to use was not going to work. So I dropped the desalination plant, and then we found some new technology whereby 
We flew with the helicopter with a, uh, with a satellite dish attached to it that could show us where there were aquifers, water underground. And within a day's time, we knew exactly where we could find underground water that we could uh, access much quicker and much cheaper. So at the same time, there was a big drought in California. So I also worked with the mayor and uh, he said, no, the aquifers is good source of water, but you need to replenish it. So we replenish it with um, treated wastewater. I then reached out to all Capetonians. I said, look, I'm having a kind of a competition. I want to get all the water saving ideas from you and from the commercial side, you know, because we still use in our toilets clean water. And I had three of those exhibitions. You won't believe the plans that they came up with. And water saving, like having a shower in the morning and then you get the water in a bucket and then you uh, go use it for your garden. We got lots of ideas. We wouldn't have been able to do it without Catonians. Yeah. Minister, I could have a whole show. <laughs> I agree. It's amazing. All of these, first of all, the, the, the reality of dealing with the threat, then looking at all of the interventions, then looking yes. at unrealistic solutions, but probing them. And it, it strikes me that you're an incredibly hands-on person um, that gets her hands dirty. Oh, definitely. You know what? It took me many years to delegate because I found out very quickly that it's best to do it yourself than you know it's done. But running such a big city of 4 million people, I, I had to sometimes rely on delegation, but not without having the proper tracking systems in place. I had a device on my phone that we designed some software where with the press of a button, I could get information immediately. Because you know what, uh, people look up to you to come with the solutions. And some of these technical people would try and make it so difficult for you to say this is not possible. But the people of, of Cape Town, and especially the one lesson was that in any government, you must do maintenance regularly. And that's why I split the budget in the city of Cape Town to say, we're only going to use six, 60% of the 6 billion rand for new infrastructure and 40% for maintenance. And if we had not done that since 2011, when I became the mayor, when you are in such crisis and your infrastructure is not well maintained, it costs 10 times more just to, uh, to replace it. So the country is in good hands with its five trillion rand odd worth of public infrastructure and, and public works. I wanted to ask you a question concerning leadership and some yes. of the strategies that you apply, because often female leadership has a different flavor to male leadership. Yeah. So if you could share some of the, let's say, the, the approaches that you use that have been successful. You know, sitting with such a big uh, portfolio that you have to manage and maintain and the, the failure to maintain over many years, valuable assets would just run, run down the ground. One of my tasks is to maintain the government infrastructure. 
I said, I can't do it alone. Government will never have all of the money. Because what I found in government was that where there's a dilapidated building, for instance, they will hire security companies to guard that dilapidated building and sp- instead of spending the money and fixing the building. But I went into the private sector, like I did right in the beginning. You know, there was a big de- a trust deficit between public sector and private sector, but I worked on it to, to break down that. So I went to the private sector and I said, look, we as government, we are leasing a lot of buildings from you that you maintain and all of that. But the building will always be yours. And I'm sitting with this state-owned property portfolio that I want to fix. And I said to the private sector, I'm starting with five properties. And this is the deal I made with them. You refurbish, you fix, you operate. We will give you a lease for 25 years to recover your income. I will guarantee you that I will give you government departments that can rent from you. And then after 25 years, you transfer it back to government. And then I put a second condition that we should be now turning to green buildings. So all the buildings must be fitted with a photovoltaic to generate electricity. Also, we need to put in water-saving devices. And if you do that, uh, because we pay the utilities at the end of the month, we will then share the savings. And there was a big, big response from the private sector. But because it's the first time that we are doing it, we had to do a proof of concept on on five buildings in in Pretoria, which is going to the market early in in the new year. So that is something that has never been done before. But while we are struggling with electricity, like everybody knows, it's a major problem. Everybody speaks about the supply of electricity. But I wanted to work on driving down the demand of electricity. So that was also a new plan that I've introduced. I almost wanted to say, I think we've already struck day zero with electricity. You know, it's natural. You have to balance the supply and demand. Now, there is not a campaign to drive down the demand because ESCOM put us in load shedding when the load shedding is over. We just go back to the use of the same amount of electricity. And that's why I said to the president, as government, we need to lead by example, by driving down the demand for electricity in government buildings. And and that's why we came up with this project, that it's going to take another year, 18 months for the uh, uh, independent power producers, the renewable to come on stream. But in the meantime, drive down the demand. I said, we also have to engage with communities and, you know, help them and government can subsidize PV uh, and they can all be generating electricity and can put it back in the grid. So I'm more also worried that, you know, we're not doing enough to drive down the demand because that's going to help us to stretch the little bit that we have. True. And that's a a whole reapplication of some of the work that you did within the, the water space. We chatted earlier about you um, being the leader of the good party. So in yes. addition to your ministerial portfolio, you lead the good party. Yes. And it's it's one that you founded, which stands for fighting for a more equitable South Africa based on the values and principles of social democracy. 
And this is the second political party that you've launched by yes. no repeat. What drove you to establish the good party? When I started uh, the first political party in 2003, I set myself a goal to become the first woman leader of a political party that can contest elections and win seats at local, national, and provincial. And I achieved that. I then came together with Helen Ziller. And we knew each other from struggle days already. And we said, you know what? We must start a project where we can build an alternative to the ruling party. And as opposition parties, we should come together to build that alternative. And so we were four political parties. It was the Independent Democrats, the DA, COPE, and also UDM. And we made it a condition that before we decide to come together in any form or shape, that we must have a mandate from our members. And then in the end, the other two political parties just um, didn't come to the fore. So Alan and myself decided, let's go on alone. And I said, before we get together, let's have an engagement. Before the marriage, we have an engagement. We're going to work together for two years, from 2012 to 2014. Uh, yes, my books, yes, the resources that I have, yes, the human resources. And we shared it and we worked together. And it worked. It really worked. In 2011, I ran for the mayor of the city of Cape Town and increased the support that the DA had in 2006 when Helen was the mayor. Helen got something like about 40, 42%, increased it to 60%. Then I stayed the mayor and the two parties came together. But then I soon realized that the values that I share with Helen Ziller and, and my background, it's not the issues when it comes to doing these things like we are the policy of redress, reconciliation, diversity, and delivery. I could live with that. 2016, we went back to the elected. I increased the support to 67%, the highest ever in the country. And then after 2016, people thought that I had the ambition of becoming the leader of the DA because I was elected the leader of the provincial government in, in the Western Cape. And I said, no, I don't want to be a leader. And I resigned. And then, you know, all of these egos. And then when they, they didn't like what I was achieving, driving transformation, integrating the city, I soon realized, but there are some people who don't believe in their own values and their own policies. And then they tried to uh, work me out by accusing me of corruption. So for two years, 2017 and 2018, I fought them. And I won four court cases in the high court. It cost the DA a million rand. And once I cleared my name, I said, I will leave under my own conditions. I wasn't at home for three months when I decided, you know what, considering just this experience that I've had now, I still have got something to contribute to the country. 
And then three months before the elections, I decided, no, I'm going to participate in 2019. And we got two seats in the National Assembly, and that's how I could be appointed as, as a minister. So I will do it again. But the reason why I, I've done it, I wanted to do it on what I believe in. You know, my principles, I will never, never give up. You must be firm on your principles, but you must be flexible when it comes to strategy and tactic. And, and, and no other woman has followed me after that, which is very sad in, in our country. And that, for me, is often the challenge that, well, at least you've, you've made the headway. You've established your party. You've imbibed your values and principles. It's your party. These are your, your ideals. Before we go into looking at some of those, those principles and ideals, you've been in this game a long time and you've been very successful at it. But I'm sure there must have been obstacles that you encountered because of your gender. Can you tell us what they were and how you overcame them? Let me tell you, I have served as a mayor. I have served as um, a minister at provincial level. I'm now a national minister. I said to everybody, I must still just be a president one day. <laughs> but I've got no ambition. But let me tell you um, what I've learned, even in the years when I was in the trade union movement, um, that politics is like a game. You know, and with any game, you've got rules, a soccer game or a rugby game. And if you want to play in the game, you need to play by those rules, even though those rules are very unfair against women. But as a woman, you mustn't then, then just go and sit in a corner, complain about the rules. You must play by the same rules that the men are playing and take them on the same game. And I just continued on that mantra that take them on in, inside the rules of the games. And so, yes, the, uh, the patriarchal society that we live in, you encounter um, uh, male members of your party uh, who come with that attitude and approach and from their family structure or whatever. And I just, I fired them. I said, I've got a very small head. I'm not going to allow anybody to sit on my head. And if you want to hear to be work with me, I've got nothing against men. But if you don't espouse the same values, then you must go. There was at once when I, I fired 13 public representatives and I won all 13 court cases. So it is a struggle. What is difficult, mostly difficult, is to find that balance between your family life and your political life. Then I've also learned that that balance is critical. You know, my late husband used to say, we don't mind sharing you with the country. But while I was traveling and fighting in the struggle against apartheid and then became a public rep and all of that, you know, he just took over the running of the whole household. He bought the groceries, he managed the bank accounts and everything. So I had a good support structure. And if there was something wrong with my husband, then I've got four sisters that's still alive, they will come in and help. But it's finding that balance where you have to 
you have to make time for your family. Because when everything is set and done, you come off the TV interview, radio interview, you still have to come home and your family are there. And I always walk in at home. Now, my family has always consisted of my two-legged families. And then I've got four four-legged families, part of the family. I've got four huskies. And so when I get in at home, a hot meal will be waiting for me, cooked by my husband. And I will go and greet my, my furry babies and then switch off from the rest. But without that support, I tell you, I don't know how women uh, can survive if you don't have that family structure uh, support. And it's something that we build, whether it's uh, consciously built or whether it's uh, something that we, we learn. But that is the only way of being able to do things, is having that solid support. Yes, and play by the same rules, you know. I mean, some of them can be rude to you. They can be condescending, patronizing. They can attack you in parliament, you know. Um, I used to walk away and wait for the next opportunity where I am speaking. Then I, then I do the same. Trevor Manuel once called me when I exposed the arms deal. Uh, he, he called me a useful idiot for the losing bid, uh, uh, bidders that didn't get the bids during the arms deal. A week later, in an unrelated debate that we were speaking on, I think it was the health debate, I didn't care whether it's anything about the house. I, I saw him in the house and I said, you, you called me a useful idiot. But let me tell you, you are a useful idiot because you think that this country is sitting with a bottomless pit of money that people are stealing. You know, you are so shocked. <laughs> and, and, and that's what you have to do because people think as women, you must be uh, soft-spoken, uh, you know, if I want to scream, I scream. If I want to swear, I swear. I say to everyone, I come to life but once and I'm going to live my life that suits me and it makes me happy. I think that is a great lesson. Tapping back into what we were talking about on, on values, one question that I ask all my guests and yes. I find that everybody brings a different recipe is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success, whether it is about values, particular person, um, yes. faith. So if you could just share with us briefly what, in your opinion, have been some of your core success drivers. You know, there is one thing, and that is fear. You know, people fear the unknown. Uh, some women will uh, give up even before they have tried because they fear what is going to happen. And I've never allowed fear to uh, oppress me. My departure point is that I fear no one. I don't care who you are or what position you hold. I only fear my God. For the rest, I don't fear anyone. And I think if you can get over that fear, because you, you sometimes fear that, oh, this man is going to say this and that about me. I don't care. So fear is, 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 is the key issue that women must overcome. But also sometimes in this patriarchal society, there are a lot of bad things that happen to women. 
I mean, if you look at the uh, uh, um, gender-based violence and femicide in our country, women are being oppressed at home, in the workspace, they're discriminated against, they're not getting equal work for, 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 for equal pay. And all the bad things that happened to me, I will say to myself, it's because you allow it to happen. Don't allow these bad things to happen to you. So if something happened to me, I will first say, oh, I've allowed this to happen. But I will go back and I will fight back and say, no, you can't do this to me or you don't speak to me like this. I said, I'm not your wife or your cousin or your mother. You don't speak to me like this. But you have to do it at that moment when it happened. Not a day later or so. When it happened, you must be able to. Even if you need to raise your voice at that moment, respond and don't allow it to happen to you. But it's, it's mo most probably easier said than done. Because once you have built up that reputation, they become scared of you. So they won't take their chances with you because you, you have built up a persona of a no-nonsense person. And I, I, I find uh, that is helping me a lot because they know that you're not going to mess around with me. It really is, for me, an expression of your assertiveness. And it's almost flipping yes, the fear yes. script on its head. Minister, we are unfortunately running out of time. So as we wrap up today's show, please, can you tell us from a, a point of view of uh, well-wishes or motivation or inspiration for women and girls going into the new year, if you could please give us uh, a message. Yes, I would really like to say to all women that there are three words that we need to remove out of our vocabulary. And that is to say, I can't do it. Sometimes people say, I can't do it even before you have tried that must be removed because anything in life is possible, but on condition, if you are prepared to work hard and to work damn hard, you can do anything. So that will be my message to, to, to our women in our country. Uh, go for it. Fight for your rights. You're only going to live once. Don't allow these bad things to happen to you. And you will find that that gives you so much strength and confidence. Because if you fear and um, you say, I can't do this, I can't do that, it doesn't give you any confidence. But if you say, I can't do it, you will go out and work hard and do it. So that will be my message. I think that's a great message. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing a, a glimpse into your world and all of the things that you've accomplished and have still to accomplish thinking about Infrastructure Plan 2050. So thanks once again for joining. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and we have been talking to the Minister of Public Works and Infrastructure, who is also the leader of the political party, Good, Patricia DeLille.